everyone have a notebook? The notes we'll be looking at today and over the next several weeks. Larry has some here. So if you don't have notes, Larry can get some to you. All right, and while they are getting those passed out, let me remind you of some stuff that is coming up in the life of our church. The 16th, this is in your program, so I encourage you to take those fridge notes and uh, that part you can tear off and you can put it, uh, or it's the middle panel that you can stick up on your fridge with the long-range stuff that's coming up. But two weeks from this evening, the 16th at 6.30 is our annual Adult Christmas Fellowship. That is for adults and uh, there's no child care for that, so you'll need to make other arrangements for the child care. And then you see in the program what we ask you to bring. We ask everybody to bring an appetizer. And then depending on your last name, uh, to bring a dessert or a beverage. So to bring two food items, uh, an appetizer, everybody, and then a dessert for some of you, beverages for, from some of you, depending on your last name. So take a look at that. And then the other item to bring is a white elephant gift. We have a white elephant gift exchange. And a white elephant gift is uh, an inexpensive gift. Uh, a gag kind of kind of gift, white elephant, you don't want it around. <laughs> so, And you wrap it and you bring, if you're coming as a couple, you each bring one. So every person brings a white elephant gift. So you bring uh, four items, right? Did I do that? Yeah, math right? An appetizer? No, three items. An appetizer and either a beverage or a dessert and your white elephant gift, the three, three items. And you'll bring two white elephant gifts if you're coming as a couple. So that's on the uh, 16th. Got the holiday coming up toward the uh, end of the month, and our schedule of services remains the same this year. We sometimes, if uh, Christmas, Sunday falls on Christmas Eve or on Christmas, then uh, we just have a worship service on that day and no educational hour. But uh, that's not the way it falls this year, so our schedule won't change for any of that. We have worship and Sunday school for all of it. Uh, and then going a little bit further out into January, January 6th is an important very important family meeting, congregational meeting for our church, 2.30 in the afternoon that Sunday. Uh, we'll be giving uh, the best, most complete update we can on our ministry center, into which we will be moving one month after that, two months actually from now. So February 3rd is our first Sunday in the ministry center. February 6th will be the first Wednesday for our midweek program there. And on January 6th, we'll have that congregational meeting, part of which will be to explain where we are with that and uh, give you as many details as, as we can. This week, uh, I am leaving. I'm leaving Thursday evening about 9.30, 14 hours nonstop to Beijing. And uh, I will, uh, Monday through Friday of uh, the following week, uh, have the privilege of teaching how to interpret the Bible to about 50, 50 house church, Chinese house church leaders uh, in a town a couple hours away from, from Beijing. But I'm getting there a couple days early, so uh, I get to hang around in Beijing for a bit uh, with our missionary, Rob Howell. You all know Rob, we support them, the Howells. And uh, so Great Wall, Forbidden City, uh, Tiananmen Square, get to see those in those couple days. So I'm really, it's a great privilege, really excited about that. Uh, so, but most important, pray about the ministry that will take place that following week to the brothers there. Safety, all of that, 14 hours. Uh, but I'd rather do nonstop than, you know, big, big layover and all that. So uh, I'll be back, though, leaving there on Saturday 
and returning here, yep, on Saturday. You return the same day. <laughs> and I'll be back, Lord willing, a week from Sunday. So I'll just, I won't be here next Sunday uh, or the following Wednesday. I'll miss one Sunday and one Wednesday. Next Sunday, Pastor Matt will preach, and uh, Brother Ron Biggs will teach this hour. And then uh, I'll be back to continue the series we're starting today. So what is the series that we're starting today? The notebook that you have in front of you says uh, Biblical Worldview uh, 101. And this is uh, 11 weeks long total. Introductory lesson that we'll do today and then 10 lessons after that. So 11 Sundays we'll be going through that. We'll have one Sunday off next week and then we'll plow 10 weeks straight through it. And then that will bring us to February the 17th. And on February the 17th of next year, be in our ministry center, uh, we will have an outreach series. We're trying to think of the name of it. But it is going to take one aspect of a biblical worldview, namely biblical anthropology. It's a fancy term for what does the Bible teach about humanity? What does the Bible teach about who we are? Our, who am I? What is my identity? Uh, where did I come from? All of, these, all of these questions that a non-biblical worldview answers quite differently than we do. And it has profound effects on how we see ourselves and how we see our behavior and how we see our relationships with others. And so uh, we're going to deal with uh, that issue in that series beginning February 17th for several weeks. And then sometime later next year, I don't know if immediately after that series uh, or later in the fall, but next year we are going to do a series called 10 Keys to Unlocking the Bible. And that'll be 10 weeks, and each of those weeks will be focused on a particular theme, foundational theme, to understanding the overall story of the Bible. Now, it's based on a little book by that name, 10 Keys to Unlocking the Bible Story. And it's just a helpful little book. It'll be helpful, I think, to you all to just kind of put it together. But it'll also be helpful to people who don't know really anything about how the Bible's put together and what its narrative is and all of that. So therefore, it'll be, I think, a helpful outreach series for us as we're fairly early on in that new subdivision and in our, in, in our, uh, in our building. Okay, So that's a long range. That's what's coming up. This series, Biblical Worldview 101, I did, I think, in 2003. And many of you were not here in uh, 2003. And in the years since, I have done selected portions of this in different, uh, at different times. So some of what we'll go through, you, you have heard if you were here in 2003, or you may have heard pieces of it at, at other times. But if you weren't here in 2003, you've never had it all put together in the form of a full description of what a biblical worldview looks like. And uh, one of the things the biblical worldview says is, don't walk up front while I'm talking. But, but, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> and you see at the page one, if you'll take a look at page one, introduction. At the end of this introductory lesson, you'll understand what we mean by worldview and what the components of a biblical view of the world are. But first, at the top of page one, I say everybody has a worldview. 
So as we start this out and you get this notebook in your hand that says Biblical Worldview 101 and you may be saying, I'm not sure what I would say if someone asked me to define what a worldview is. And that's perfectly fine. You will after we get done today. But even if you don't know what it is, I'm saying in that first sentence, you still have a worldview. And not only do you have a worldview, everybody else does as well. It, it really is fairly simple. In its simplest form, worldview means just literally the way you view everything, the way you view the world. And what we're saying in that first sentence is that everyone has a set of lenses through which he or she views the world. And what's important about understanding, knowing what your view of the world is, the reason it's important is because those lenses will affect what you see, how you see it, and then how you react and interact with what you see. So everybody has a worldview. Most people are not conscious of that, though. Most people don't think about what is my view of the world. Why do I see things the way I see them? Why do I interpret events the way that I interpret them? And so, just as an example, you know, we've got this big debate, and in fact, next lesson, two weeks from now, we'll get into this, but where did we come from? And there are different ways of looking at the data, the, the facts related to the study of origins, where we came from. And what most people don't realize is they don't just look at a fossil or an artifact as a brute fact standing alone by itself. They bring to that view, that look at that artifact, that fossil, a particular way of looking at things. And that affects then how they interpret what that fossil means. So, uh, we, those of us who believe the Bible, believe that origins are the result of an act of God, that God created. And that affects how we look at the facts. Now, notice, it doesn't change the facts, but it affects how you look at the facts. So we'll see in two weeks, for instance, uh, when we look at the, geological, the geologic column, we don't see just layers that are neatly evolving on top of each other with fossils being layered on top of each other and thereby you can date how old a fossil is by how far down in the strata it is because we don't see it that way. Our worldview says these things didn't, th that this didn't come about, this geologic column did not come about by millions of years of sedentary stuff being piled on stuff and more stuff and more death and more bones and more fossils. It didn't come about that way, we say. That it was created by a direct act of God. And further, this God has still remained active in his world. And in fact, at one time in the past, he destroyed the world by a flood. And if that catastrophe actually occurred, as we believe it did, then that will upset the geologic column in places, won't it? So that you won't be able to just look at this neat layers of fossils and strata. But that depends on how you come. Now the facts are there. There's the columns. There's the fossils. 
But depending on your worldview, you're going to bring a different perspective to looking at the same set of facts. The person who is a naturalist that believes that the only way to interpret the facts that you see is through the lens of, of nature is going to look at it in a radically different way and then come to radically different conclusions. Think about human life. Why do you look at human life the way you do? Why do you believe that life in the womb is sacred? And, and, and you do, by the way. I don't know if you knew that, but you do. Because the Bible does. So life is sacred. Human life is sacred. Life in the womb is sacred. Well, you believe that because you come with a particular view of the world. And, that, and your view of the world includes that human life is separate, is distinct, is not in a continuum with animal life. That there's actually a disunity of sorts between human life and the animal world. Now, our evolutionary friends see a continuum between animals and, and humans. So we're going to look at life and whether or not it's sacred in a completely different way. And that's going to give rise to different kinds of behavior. I mean, if you take, if you take the opposite view to its logical conclusion, you should join PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Because after all, animals are people too. Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the idea. And so what's sacred about human life as opposed to other forms of life? In that worldview, nothing. But you have a different worldview. So everybody has one. And it affects how you view the facts. The facts don't change. The facts are what they are. But you bring your baggage. You bring your lenses. You bring your perspective. You bring your view of the world to your interpretation of those facts. Everybody has a worldview. But most people never think about the components of their worldview. And so I say at the top of that first page, most people obtain their worldview by unconsciously absorbing it from the culture rather than consciously adopting it from Scripture. And this is a grave danger for Christian people. You know, we are in the world we're going to see in a few weeks, but we're not of the world, says the Bible. But being in the world means I am surrounded, you are surrounded with voices that make, that proclaim things, that make, that issue propositions that come from something other than a biblical worldview. And if you are not very careful and intentional about it, you will unconsciously absorb components of the worldview of the world rather than from God and Scripture. It has to be consciously adopted rather than unconsciously absorbed. Now, if you did nothing, if you never read the Bible, if you never got God's perspective on things, if you never did that, then you would most definitely absorb and continue to absorb the world's view of the way the world works and what it is. And my concern is that too many Christians, it's not that they never do, they just don't do it enough. They don't regularly repair to what God has said about whatever the issue is. 
And as a result, instead of consciously adopting what we believe about things from what God has said, we absorb it from the culture. I mean, where did you get your view of politics? We just had an election. Where did you get your view of how that should go and who you should vote for? You know, I did a message on that the Sunday before the election. And I tried to say this is what God says about why he gave government. Government's responsibility to us and our responsibility to government. That's trying to consciously adopt your worldview from what God says. But my fear is, friends, that many of us simply absorb it from what we've grown up with, from what the guys at work tell us about what will be best for our paychecks, about what's going to be best for the union I'm in. And I'm not bashing unions when I say that. But that's not adopting consciously a biblical worldview. That's simply absorbing from the culture. And you could apply that then to any area. Everybody has a worldview, but most people simply absorb theirs rather than consciously, intentionally adopting it from what God has said in Scripture. Identifying and mastering the components of the Christian worldview will strengthen the faith of any believer and will help us to detect and refute error. So for those of us who are Christians, going through this exercise of knowing what the worldview is, consists of and then trying to fit the various issues with which we are confronted into those categories of a biblical worldview, that will, it will strengthen our faith because we will have a more ready answer for objections and we'll be able to identify error when we see it. You hear something and you say that's contrary to a biblical worldview. But you'll only know that if you know what the worldview is, right? So therefore, it'll help us to detect and also refute error rather than absorb that error. For those who have not yet come to faith in Christ, a survey of competing worldviews will demonstrate the truth of Christianity, we trust, and hopefully result in you coming to Christ. So this first lesson is going to stress the importance of the biblical, a biblical worldview and flesh out some of its implications. So first, the importance. I have this quote there from the late and great Francis Schaeffer. And uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote, I think, 23 books during his lifetime. I believe he died in 1983. Uh, his writings as a Christian theologian, philosopher, had great impact on me personally. And particularly for young people, young adults, I recommend the works of Francis Schaeffer. He has a five, there's a five-volume set, The Complete Works of Francis Schaeffer. It's got all 22 or 23 books in it. And that includes the one that's footnoted at the bottom there, a Christian, a Christian manifesto. And he says this, Christians have gradually become disturbed over permissiveness, pornography, schools, breakdown of the family, abortion. But they have not seen this as a totality. Each thing being a part, a symptom of, of a much larger problem. They fail to see that all of this has come about due to a shift in the worldview. That is, 
through a fundamental change in the overall way people think and view the world and life as a whole. And he is right. You see, what we're seeing today, friends, with marriage, for instance, being completely malleable, you can, you can define it however you want. That can only occur when there's been a shift in our view of the world as a culture. That would not have happened just 20 years ago. Certainly not 50 years ago. Sodomy was illegal. Let, let, me, let me rephrase that. It was, it was okay for, for states to outlaw sodomy. As Texas did, for instance, until 2003 with a Supreme Court decision. Just 2003, nine years ago. And now we have the Defense of Marriage Act being taken through the courts. Various federal appeals courts have decided that it's unconstitutional and it's making its way to the Supreme Court. But all of this is happening because of a shift in worldview. Francis Schaeffer doesn't even mention that. He mentions the breakdown of the family, but he mentions abortion specifically. He doesn't mention gay marriage. You know why? Because he wrote this in the early 1980s. That was on nobody's radar just 30 years ago. But it has come about, as have these other things, by a shift, a fundamental change in the overall way, he says, that people think and view the world and life as a whole. There was a day when my parents were growing up and through their formative years and through part of mine that there was a consensus around certain components of a biblical worldview in America. But that consensus no longer exists. And we knew this was going to happen. You teach young people year after year that they are the products of blind chance. And that's going to have effects in the way they see their world. That's going to have effects in what legislation they favor or, or don't favor. That's going to have effects on, on how, they, how they vote and behave. And we're seeing all of that in our days. So, friends, as you see what's happening and understand that what's happening is related to worldview. And until we have a, a change, and the biblical word for this is re revival, or biblical concept is revival, until we have a revival in our country where people's minds are changed and they begin to look at things clearly through a biblical worldview, then we will continue this slide. So what is a worldview? A formal definition. A worldview is a way of viewing or interpreting all of reality. It's a framework through which one makes sense of the data of life and the world. And the word all in that first sentence is important. A worldview is a way of viewing or interpreting all of reality. Your worldview will affect the way you see everything. And as a Christian, a committed Christian, who believes that our worldview comes from a message from God contained in a book, that means I need to be familiar with the content of that book and seek to apply its principles and precepts to every proposition with which I am confronted. Every decision I make needs to be filtered through the view of the world that God gives us in Scripture. 
It's the way that we inter- are to interpret all of reality. Now, what are the consequences of this? That's what a worldview is, and it has great consequences as to what worldview you, you have. Ideas have consequences, in the words of philosopher Richard Weaver. Belief determines behavior. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the heart in Scripture, you all know, is not, not just the organ in your body, uh, and uh, it's not just our emotions, but it's rather used as the seat of the entire person. And so when Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, he's talking about the control center of the person. And out of who you really are and what you really believe flows then your words and your actions. So what we think really matters because it has consequences. Belief determines behavior. And you can see this in political science. So here's a quotation from a book called The American Political Tradition by Richard Hofstadter. And he says this, the founding fathers looked to their own Christian heritage of the idea of original sin, and there they found confirmation of the notion that man is an unregenerate rebel who has to be controlled. They were inordinately confident that they knew what man always had been and what he always would be. Private vices could be public benefits. An economically beneficent result would be providentially or naturally achieved if self-interest were left free from state interference and allowed to pursue its ends. That's a mouthful. But here's what's being said. <laughs> Hofstadter is saying that the founding fathers had came out of a Christian milieu. Even if they weren't all personally Christians, they came out of that environment. And they had a, a view of the world, including their view of the nature of man, that said that man is sinful. And because man is sinful, whatever system of government we put together and whatever economic system we put together is going to have to adequately take that into account. And so, an economically beneficent result. What a cool phrase. (laughs) That we will all benefit economically if self-interest is allowed to do its thing. Now, we'll... Will self-interest be pursued? Yeah. Why? Because people are sinful. They're greedy. So instead of the state trying to change the nature of man, what the state should do, says Hofstetter, claiming that the founding fathers believed this. I personally think he's right. That's why I have this there. That they understood that man was sinful, an unregenerate rebel. But therefore, here's the good news. That guy and gal will pursue more for his or herself than they actually need. And an economically beneficent result will accrue. That is, they won't just work hard enough to get their own food. If you give this guy the opportunity to make a lot of money, he'll try to make a lot of money. And when he tries to make a lot of money, he hires more people to make him more money. And when that happens you got something called capitalism. It's no accident that in 1776, uh, Adam Smith's book, seminal book, The Wealth of Nations, 1776, does that ring a bell for anybody? That would be the Declaration of Independence as well. And that's when Adam Smith's book was published also. And so 
this, this is a view of the world. Now, out of that view of the world, you put together a construct for a nation. And it's going to be imperfect, to be sure, because it's made up of unregenerate rebels. But compared to everything else, it works pretty, pretty well for over 200 years. So Winston Churchill said, capitalism, capitalism is the worst of all economic systems, except all the rest. And he's right. It's not perfect because it's run by greedy, unregenerate people who will try to cheat. That's Wall Street. But it'll work better than all the rest of the stuff because it's based on true premises. People are greedy. Now, if you develop a system that assumes that people are basically good, not unregenerate rebels. And by the way, if that's your platform, your political platform, you know, good luck getting elected. Since you're all unregenerate rebels, here's what we're going to do. That's why I got out of politics. I'm like, there's no way I can get elected. So, so suppose you assume man's nature is good. Now what kind of economic system do you have? You'll, you'll say things like, you know, people don't, people don't want to live off the labor of others. People want to work hard. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that people naturally want to work hard. Did you know that? It doesn't. That's why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if a man will not work, he should not eat. Why does he say that? Because there are people who don't want to work. Again, you're not going to get elected saying that. But that's what the Bible teaches. But if you think human nature is basically good and what it needs is the right environment to flourish, that's going to affect the way you view society, the way you view politics, policy. So you start with the components of a biblical worldview. That includes what, it, what are people? What makes people tick? And then you form your positions and your policies accordingly. That's from the political realm. Here's another one, bottom of page one. You see the book that this is from, The Dream and the Nightmare? This book, uh, George W. Bush said that this was one of the most influential books that he had read. And so when I heard that he thought it was an influential book, I got it. And I read it. And I can see why. Here's part of what it says. Ideas have real-world consequences. Human nature is not infinitely changeable but rather has its own laws. Now, just stop there. See, human nature is not a blank slate. It's not something that, if just put in the right environment and given the right tools, everything will work out. It's not that, says he. Therefore, there is a right life for man, a life in accord with our nature. And then he goes on to describe that nature. It is not a given that people restrain their aggression, beget and nurture their offspring in marriage, exercise foresight, calculate rationally, or work to improve their condition. It's not a given, he says. Why is he saying it's not a given? Because people don't have this good nature and they automatically do the right thing. 
if given the opportunity. The wonder is not that people don't do it, but rather that they do. <laughs> we shouldn't be surprised that people don't, you know, act rational, calculate rationally and, you know, beget and raise their offspring as they should. We shouldn't be surprised at that, says he, because that's human nature. We should actually be surprised when they do that. It's an act of God's grace overcoming the natural sinfulness of man. So it makes sense to ask, middle of the quote, how society can foster people that dependably work and marry and are capable of rational calculation, how culture takes the aggressive, egotistical, raw material of human nature each of us is born with and develops in it conscience, reason, and duty. You see, the title of the book is The Dream and the Nightmare. You see, you can be a dreamer all day about what you would like human nature to be. But if that dream is not attached to the reality of what the Bible says man really is, the results will be a nightmare. We're living, we are starting to live the nightmare of a false view of human nature. It began to really take hold, really take hold. When I was in kindergarten and first grade and second grade in the 60s. You see, what, what, because man is good, people need to express themselves. And all of the expression of the 60s, baby, we've been expressing for decades now. And I don't know about you, but I could do with a little less expression. I've seen the expression and I don't like it. And I was pretty sure I wouldn't like it because I know what human nature is. But if you think it's good, then people will do the right thing and they'll exercise appropriate restraint even if you give them unlimited freedom. So that's the importance of worldview. It affects politics, it affects policy, it affects society. It affects it affects our schools. And and how we think children ought to be reared and trained. We're going to see in a few weeks some of the other isms that are out there, one of which is humanism. And humanism is a religion in its own right. It's a secular religion, but it's a religion. And, and humanism has actually put out Bibles of its own. They're called the Humanist Manifesto. 1933, Humanist Manifesto I. 1973, Humanist Manifesto II. 2003, the latest one, Humanist Manifesto 3. What, what is this manifesto? This is what we believe. This is what our religion believes. Including this is how children ought to be educated. The first Humanist Manifesto was signed by 34 people. One of them was a guy called the father of modern progressive education, John Dewey. 1933. I'll show you what he said and what they said, and you will see that what they have said, we are seeing implemented. Ideas have consequences. Your worldview matters. So, what is a Christian worldview then? Page two. By the way, I quoted Francis Schaeffer from one of his 22 or 23 books called A Christian Manifesto. That's why he called it A Christian Manifesto. 
because there's the, at that time there was the Humanist Manifesto one and the Humanist Manifesto two, and he puts out a Christian manifesto. Page two. So what are the presuppositions of a Christian worldview? Well, there are two ways to adopt a worldview. One is to compare and contrast all rivals and decide which one is best. The second one, second way is to submit to the world of the Creator and interpret life through His God-given lens. Now, I'm going to advocate for the second approach, and I say the, the first approach is actually impossible, <laughs> apart from a complete knowledge of all possible worldviews. Have you ever thought of that? You can't possibly know everything there is to know about every worldview that's out there. You cannot possibly know that. So if we are all left to just discover what our view of the world ought to be, then we've got well over 6 billion people in the world right now. So how many different approaches might you get to that? So which one of these you adopt starts with, at the very get-go, your view of the world. Is this world random such that everybody is left to fend for his or herself to find out how it's put together, why it's here, how it operates? Plenty of worldviews would say yes to that. Humanism would say yes to that. A biblical worldview says this world is not chaotic. It is not random. It has the d design and purpose written all over it. And the reason that it does is because it was made by a designing and purposeful God. And that God has spoken. And you don't have to know every ism that's out there and then hope you didn't miss one and then try to come up with the right one. The God who made the world has also explained himself and his purposes and us and our reason for being here. Now I'll try to prove that in the lessons to come. A Christian, second paragraph, with a sanctified intellect can see life for what it is. An unregenerate mind, that would be a non-Christian, continues to suppress the truth of the Christian worldview. And we see this in both Romans 1 and Acts 17. So in our remaining time, I'd like to remind you of what those are, what they say. Romans 1 and Acts 17. Christian with a sanctified intellect. Now notice that phrase. It's actually a cool phrase, sanctified intellect. Because what does it imply? It implies that the mind is not neutral. The way people think is not neutral. Our intellect needs to be enlightened, sanctified. People come into the world with a natural way of thinking, and it's contrary to God's way of seeing the world. And so the Bible says, Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, that the carnal mind, that's the unregenerate mind, the way people think, is hostile to God and cannot please Him. So the mind has to be changed. It has to be sanctified. But the Christian has had his or her mind changed so that now they can see life the way it was supposed to be seen. They're given by God, when they come to Christ, a different set of glasses through which to see the world now. And now we can see life for what it really is. And Romans 1 shows that contrast between 
the enlightened mind of a believer and the natural, unregenerate mind of the unbeliever. Romans 1, you guys will remember, beginning in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the wickedness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now notice what it's saying people naturally do. They suppress the truth. It's not that they can't see the same facts. It's that they don't want to see those facts. They hold them down. They suppress them. The heavens, Psalm 19, declare the glory of God. The skies show his, his handiwork. There is no place where their voice is not heard, the psalmist says. Everybody sees that. Everybody's got access to that. And yet people don't want to believe that and live according to the implications of that. That there's a God who made this stuff and made me. But because I'm an unregenerate rebel, I hold that down. I suppress that. And Romans 1 goes on to say in verse 19, For what may be known of God has been made plain to them, being clearly understood from what has been made. For although they knew God, they did not worship Him as God. And as a result... They became, though they professed themselves to be wise, verse 22, they became fools. So what are the presuppositions of a biblical worldview? I have them bullet pointed for you. All men know God. But men do not naturally want to know God, so they suppress it. And as a result, unbelievers are actually fools. It doesn't mean they're dumb. Highly intelligent fools. But they look at the world the wrong way. And Paul says the same kind of thing in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, Paul goes to a place called Mars Hill. It's in Athens, Greece. And he confronts philosophers in the philosophical capital of the ancient world, Athens. And he proclaims the need for them to adopt a biblical worldview. And he tells them, you don't have one now, and because you don't have one now, as a result, you don't see stuff straight. So he says, men of Athens, verse 22 of Acts 17, men of Athens. He says, as I surveyed your objects of worship, I saw that you were in all ways religious, that you're completely religious. In fact, the NIV says you're superstitious. I even saw, he says, an inscription in your pantheon of gods to one called the unknown God. So here are these philosophers in, 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 in Athens. They've got all of these statues. They've got all of these homages to personages. And one of them is to the unknown God. And then Paul says, To him that you ignorantly worship, I am now going to proclaim the truth to you. And in verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Notice where he starts. The God who made the world. That's where a biblical worldview starts. And they know this. 
They know this God made the world. He's simply reminding them of what they suppress. The God who made the world and everything in it is not worshipped in temples made by human hands as though he needed anything. For he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Do you know what he's saying to these philosophers? I'm reminding you of what you suppress. You already know, but you suppress it. You were made by God. And God's not dependent on you. He doesn't need your statues. He doesn't need any of that stuff. He's not dependent on you. You're dependent even for the breath that you take upon him. And then he says this. I have it quoted for you. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, we are also his offspring. Now notice he quotes one of your own poets. What he's showing them is, you guys already know this. Even your own poets have to acknowledge this, but you don't want to live by the implications of that, so you suppress it. But the God who made the world is completely independent of you, not dependent on you. And he has set the times for all men and the exact places where they should live, when they would be born and where they would be, this sovereign God Paul says, has done. And then he says this, and he has now appointed a man by whom he will judge the world. Jesus Christ. So he confronts them with the components of a biblical worldview that they already know, but they suppress. Then the middle of page two, therefore, because people already know these things but hold them down, Get this, we do not understand in order to believe. But rather, as Augustine has said, I believe in order to understand. (laughs) You don't see things clearly until your mind is sanctified, your mind is changed. And now when I come to believe, now I see myself, now I see others, now I see the world, now I see God clearly. Or as... The philosopher Pascal said, the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. Or, as the psalmist said, it's in thy light that we see light. So I give you at the bottom of page two, and we've got to quit, the components of a biblical worldview. Creator-creature distinction starts it, like in Romans 1 and Acts 17. But then there is the fall, the fact that humanity has fallen, and our minds are fallen, and our wills are fallen, and our emotions are fallen. And so every part of us is tainted by sin. That's part of the biblical worldview. But thanks be to God, it doesn't end there. A biblical worldview says there is such a thing from God as redemption. And that this God has a purpose. His purpose, and then he has given us our purpose to carry out on his behalf. Top of page three, and we're done. The Christian who has a good grasp on these issues is, I believe, fully competent to answer any objection, face any difficulty, and accomplish any God-given task. It's for this reason that our teens and adults, for our teens and adults, our primary educational goal is the formation of a biblical worldview. You are in a church that understands the importance of worldview. And when our young people get to be in junior high, we really start to hammer now. You need to understand yourself in relation to God and his world. And we try to continue to hammer that home through things like this, all right? So we'll do that for 10 lessons. 
When I get back in two weeks, next week, Brother Ron Biggs will teach. Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we depart. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day, the opportunity to worship you and learn of you. I thank you for these brothers and sisters and guests who are here. And I thank you that we could take this time to look at the importance of having the lenses that you alone can supply for us to see you and your world and ourselves and others as intended. Lord, I pray over the weeks ahead that if there's any here who have never thought about their worldview, has never adopted consciously a biblical view of the world, that they will do so by the end of our time together. If they've never had their intellect sanctified, enlightened by your Holy Spirit, by coming to Jesus Christ and being rescued, delivered from the denial that is inherent in our sin. We deny the truth. We hold it down. We suppress it. I pray that they would come to you in salvation and that they would see light in the one in whom is light. I pray, Lord, that you will go with us this week and help us to contemplate these things. Help us as we read the newspaper or we go online and we watch television or we converse today and this week. Help us to filter what we hear through a biblical view of the world. And Lord, help us at the end of this time together to be better equipped to serve you, to identify error, to refute error, to be evangelists, your ambassadors, and to bring glory to your name. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.